Good morning, man. Thank you so much for taking time to sit and look and see what the word of the Lord would have for us today. The subject we're going to cover is the fear of man. Specifically, we want to properly define the fear of man, which is class one. How does this sin persist and how is it pervasive in our lives and the bondage that it has over us? Next week, we're going to cover and contrast how does this look versus the fear of God, his holiness and the freedoms that we have in Christ. The third week, Travis is going to take us through why is it that even though we have a good definition of fear of man, an excellent theology of fear of God, why do we still walk in ungodliness? Why do we still persist to fear man? And finally, in week number four, Eric is going to close us out into seeing how we can have a proper fear of God that provides a new vision for our lives that brings God the most glory. It is very important that you don't just attend today. It is very important that you attend week two, week three, and week four, because only collectively can you see this body of work continue to build upon itself. And lastly, see how we can live lives that are transformed by the gospel, in light of the gospel, and through the gospel. You know, the great irony of being asked to teach this lesson is the sheer fact that I need to overcome my fear of public speaking. What will you guys think of me? Will I mishandle the scripture? What if my heart starts racing and my throat closes up? What if I make a fool out of myself? I also consider, what if you guys think highly of me? What if my ego is built up, boosted up? What if in my pride I take what seems to be just a, hey, thank you, Elias, for, for sharing to, hey, look at what I, what I have done. And I, and I attempt to steal glory uh, away from God. So again, all these things were going through my mind as I was putting uh, this study uh, or shaping it really uh, because of most of the content, again, was not derived by me. Most of the content really that we're going to cover is uh, most, most importantly founded and grounded in the scriptures. Uh, but also a good supplementary resource that we've used to put this course together is When People Are Big and God Is Small. It's a book by Ed Welch. We highly recommend that you read this book throughout the course of the study. Remember, we're meeting every two weeks, so it's a six-week six study. So as you move to the chapters of the book, you'll see how we've shaped this course very similar to how the book is laid out. Before we get started in diving into the fear of man, I'd like to open up with prayer. There's an excellent prayer from the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. And the first prayer, which is actually titled the Valley of Vision, I think is very appropriate for today because it helps us understand how the Bible teaches us, which is really in paradox. And what I mean by that is that the way up is oftentimes the way down, that the way to properly uh, defeat fear, fear of man, is through fear, which is fear of God. So I want to read the introductory prayer, the Valley of Vision. Join me today. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul. 
that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter the stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Amen. Fear of man is not limited to terror at the idea of public speaking. It extends to every facet of our lives, every level of interaction with other people. People we don't, people we know, people we don't know, people we don't even really care to have a good opinion of us. Some examples is, you know, that I can think of here or I wrote down for you guys are you're out to dinner. You bow your head to give thanks for a meal in a restaurant. You look around to see if there's anyone you know or to make sure the wait staff won't be coming back for at least 60 seconds. Or at the coffee house, you're reading a Christian book, but you try to read the ones with the more ambiguous title or that a smaller in size or a smaller font size so that nobody can easily see and you can easily conceal what you're actually reading. It impacts what we do. When we get into the different categories, you'll see that fear of man is not easily seen, but its effects are more easily seen. Think about ignoring sin. I know that when we want to respond to conflict, conflict the tendency is to fear, fear man more than God. I don't love addressing the sin in others. Sometimes I even avoid difficult conversations, lest they have a negative opinion towards me. I would rather continue to be wrong by someone than to blow up at them, or for that matter, to biblically deal with their sin. Why do I respond in these ways? It can appear as though I'm being a peacemaker, not wanting to stir the pot. But too often, I'm a peace lover, rather than a peacemaker. I would rather people maintain a good opinion of me than honestly and sometimes painfully dealing with the problem. We see this also in marriage. We hide sin. Marriage has provided an entirely new venue for experiencing fear of man in my life. On one hand, your life is much more exposed to another person, yet we find ourselves wanting to hide all the more. So you cover up a purchase that you made, so that your spouse, or in the event that your spouse won't approve of, or you hide an overbooked schedule. Maybe you keep certain sins hidden. Maybe you fear that if anyone else knew what your spouse did about you, others would have a different view of you. Marriage is one key of relationships that the Lord can use to help us see and overcome our fear of others. Or it can be the place where we most give into into that fear of others. We see this also in the church. Hiding the sin, like I mentioned earlier, like I mentioned earlier from, from our spouses and, the, and in the church as well. Yet the church is another place that the Lord uses to grow us in fearing Him more and fearing others less and loving them more. Yet it often tends to be a place that our fear of others and good opinions can be dominant. You want to be viewed as mature or having it together. You think that others around you will think that you have it all together so you can't share your life honestly with them. When we allow our relationships in the church to be characterized by fear of others, we show that we really don't understand who that other person is. We don't understand who God is, and we don't have an accurate picture of ourselves. There are three categories of fears that will continue to to build upon us as we go through this study. And I want you guys to write these down. I'm also going to give you guys a handout that's going to have these, these three documented for you. The first one is physical hurt. Again, three, three types of fear, three categories that we'll harp on all day. First one being physical pain or physical hurt. 
This one can be as simple as and straightforward as a bully, as a violent spouse, uh, the violence in your neighborhood, maybe an angry person, uh, even past abuse, current abuse, sexual abuse, harassments. It even expands past just physical, but also verbal, verbal mockery, anything that anyone can see that has actually happened in front of you. And I say actually because you'll see the other two are more subjective than this one. This is true objective persecution, physical suffering for the gospel, terrorism, racism, things that we experience in the broken world. We fear that people will reject us. Category number two. This is often connected with things. Uh, this is often or best seen in uh, when we compare ourselves to each other. We judge and compare social standings. Where do I live? What do I drive? What else do I possess? In relationships, you know, I'm friends with him or with her. I am part of this inner circle. I was invited to that party or, or that outing, that party or that outing. Uh, maybe experiences. I've traveled to these countries. I've been to these events. Uh, again, when we elevate ourselves to others, education ends up being a good form or a good way where we see um, or, or fear rejection of others, depending on how far we progress. Do we have a bachelor's, a master's, a doctorate degree? Even in character, sharing the gospel, being honest, telling the whole truth, even when you know it won't help your image. The fear of being rejected takes on different shapes depending on which side we see this also play out in the fear of exposure, which is the third one. We fear that people are going to see the true us. So again, we see a lot of this and its effects. We hide in pornography, voyeurism, which is at its heart. It seeks to separate us from sexual pleasure, from the hard work and the vulnerability of marital commitment and responsibility. Obsessions of other forms like fantasy, video games, virtual realities, role playing, escapism like drugs and alcohol, food, eating disorders, music and television. At the heart of many of these addictions, you'll find that this type of fear persists. We hide in our houses. We hide in our rooms. We hide behind our screens because we don't want people to see the true us. This can also see uh, can also be seen in the perfectionists. You know, they hide in their accomplishments a good resume, they hide in their next goal or their next project that they've completed. We see this happening all the time and we believe that the person who has it all together and when in actuality they are the most insecure people of us all. They fear that people would know and, 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 and hate or dislike them if they don't accomplish these things. These obsessions with work, a desire to make a name for yourself only to waste a lifetime hiding behind fading accomplishments. You can see this in hyper-masculinity, hyper-feminism, we see a fear of exposure running through gender roles and confusion. Again, in our country, hyper-individuality and self-reliance is, is really thrust upon us from an early age. If you go to your handouts, you will see these three recapped over and over. And as we continue to expound over different uh, terms and, and, and different uh, doctrines, again, we're going we're gonna to reference these three categories over and over. So let's recap the, 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 the three categories. Three categories are going to be physical hurt. Second category is going to be uh, fear of rejection. Category number three is fear of people exposing us. All right. This would have been a time when we would have broken out into our, into our groups. We're not doing that today, so we're going to keep plowing through the study. I want to get into three more categories on the popular, popular use of the word need. This happens all the time, right? I need, 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 need. Gotta have, gotta have it. Um, we're gonna break this out into three. 
biological needs, spiritual needs, and psychological needs. I want to be clear, most of what we're covering today can be found from an excellent resource from Ed Welch, which is When People Are Big and God Is Small. I highly recommend reading this book. A lot of what we're going over today is found in this book. A lot of the expert excerpts that we're taking out, including the three categories I just mentioned earlier, now we're in three categories of needs that I'm going to mention now. A lot of these categories, a lot of these subjects are found in that book, and you're going to get much more color going into the book uh, because it's a four, six, four to six hour read versus the 40 minutes that you're getting with me. So I really do highly encourage you guys going to that one as a supplementary resource on this study. Now, biological needs. These are very straightforward. Biological needs we understand as food, as water, as clothes, and shelter. Biological needs are not ignored in scripture. We're all reminded of the famous verse, right? If, if he takes care of the sparrows, how much more will he take care of you? So your biological needs are not being ignored by the Father. Spiritual needs. This is the thrust of the gospel. Spiritual needs are these things that are forgiveness of sins. Spiritual needs are things that have to do with eternity. Adoption into the family of God. Sanctification, what you and I are living out today. Glorification, us being uh, taken from our, from our state and being put into our final state with the Lord where we get to be with Him and enjoy Him forever. The thrust of Scripture, the thrust of what we're getting at today is addressing our spiritual needs. The third one is psychological needs. These are needs that more encompass your need for happiness, acceptance, a need for significance, security, and self-esteem. The most important part about today is making sure we orient these three needs properly. Again, the Bible doesn't ignore biological needs. I'm not dismissing psychological needs, but I need to make sure that you guys are properly properly placing these three needs in its, in, in its right plane. For example, it would be really nice if Christian Day was my friend. It would be great if he accepted me. It would be really, it would be awesome if, if he, uh, you know, considered me uh, highly respected. That would be awesome, right? But if somebody were to ask me today, um, Elias, would you rather Christian Day be your friend or would you rather eat today? You know, the need for that psychological need I have for Christian Day is starting to become very small because I got to eat. And if I don't eat, I die. Right, So I quickly see biological needs super, superseding uh, psychological needs very quickly. And I, and I can see that in that very quick example. And that would be true a lot of the things. Hey, I would like if I had obedient children. It'd be great if my wife you know, thought I was the best thing that ever happened since sliced bread. But again, these, these two needs start to put themselves in the right perspective when we realize the need, the necessity we have to eat and to drink exceed the necessity that we have uh, for psychological needs. So again, it doesn't dismiss them completely, but puts them on the right plane. Now we start bringing in spiritual needs. Where does that lie in the spectrum? The Bible is very clear. What profit is there in a man to gain the whole, the whole world and lose his soul? So the Bible gives you straight out the answer. What profit is there for you to have all of your biological needs met? You have food, you have water, you have shelter. Christian Day is your friend. He respects you and for you to lose your soul. So the scripture is very clear. It puts spiritual needs at the top of the priority. We do not live on bread alone, but on every word that is the word of life, right? The secondary need, again, in, this, in, in its right place would be biological needs. Man, I got to eat. It'd be great if Chris liked me, but if I don't eat, I die, 
right? If I don't have shelter for the elements, I die. And then thirdly being psychological needs. I want to read a blockchain. And when you guys get your handouts, you pick them up on Sunday, you're going to get some of these, uh, specifically this block, uh, block quote, not blockchain. You can see where my mind is. Uh, you have this, uh, I want to read this block quote from Ed Welch, again from his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. And this block quote, again, helps us understand the, the primary, secondary, tertiary nature of spiritual, biological, psychological. And here it goes. If we think that sin is any way superficial, then we do not understand the true nature of sin. When psychological needs, rather than sin, are seen as our primary problem, not only is our self-understanding affected, but the gospel itself is changed. A needs theory suggests that the gospel is most deeply intended to meet psychological needs. In other words, the gospel is aimed at our self-esteem problem. It is aimed at our tendency to dwell on our failures. It is intended to be a statement of God's love saying that God doesn't make junk. You know, this sounds pretty good to us, but it is not the gospel. The good news of Jesus is not intended to make us feel good about ourselves. Instead, the good news humbles us. We learn in Isaiah 6, for example, that the presence of God first destroyed Isaiah, then it cleansed him, then it liberated him from what? From himself, from his own sinful desires. After his symbolic cleansing and liberation, Isaiah was free to be less concerned about himself and more concerned about the plan of God. Jesus did not die to increase our self-esteem. Rather, Jesus died to bring glory to the Father by redeeming people from the curse of sin. Of course, the cross has many benefits, one being that we're no longer cast out of the presence of God and we have intimacy with the Holy One. But the cross deals with our sin problem, our spiritual need. I couldn't have said that better. The orientation has to be very clear. We have to make sure that we put spiritual needs, biological needs, and psychological needs in their right place. When needs become our idols, these relationships I talked to you guys about earlier, psychological needs, again, I talked to you guys about the relationship with Chris Jaday and, and the desire that I have for Chris Jaday to be my friend. That's going to be my case study today. We're going to keep expounding on that. So when I need to be acknowledge or respect it or love. So when my psychological needs become primary, what ends up happening in what ends up happening inevitably is that my feelings that my feelings become needs. And I and and when I fear that I'm not going to have that psychological need met, I have quickly turned Chris into what God intended to be a healthy, good relationship of accountability, love and care to an idol. This is where I meant to say earlier that you'll see some elements of fear of man kind of overlay itself with pride and also with idolatry. Now, what, what, is, what is meant to be a good thing, what God has given us as a good and healthy thing has now become a bad thing. So my desire or my need to, uh, to have Chris be my friend or my psychological need uh, that was, you know, that is a feeling now has become a need. And now that I fear that I'm not going to have that then I start to worry and I start to do a lot of things to make sure that I do get that. I want to make sure I'll, I'll maybe I'll hide my sin from Chris so that he'll like me better. Maybe I'll just repeat what Chris says and just, you know, whatever he says goes so that he'll think more of me. And when I start to live out that, that fear and when I, when that fear of not getting that need fulfilled from Chris ends up, you know, um, growing, it really turns into an idol and that idol has become a God for me. 
So some of the things that I want you to be thinking about is, would you say to yourself that I need, I love, I would be devastated not to have, I would hate to have or experience, I'm controlled by, I'm obsessed uh, with, I would die for. When you start answering those questions, and one, one of the greatest things from uh, Gospel Treason that I remembered, I shared it with Ron earlier this week is, am I willing to sin to get that thing? If the answer is, yes, I'm willing to sin to get that thing, that thing is most likely an idol. So am I willing to sin to get acceptance from Chris? Am I willing to sin for Chris to care for me or to think highly of me? If the answer to those questions are yes, most likely you've made Chris in that relationship. Most likely you've made that thing. It could be a fear of, uh, of, the, of a hurricane, a fear uh, of imminent threat. It could be fear of somebody physically hurting you. That thing has quickly moved from a natural to, an, uh, to, to a sinful uh, desire to have a, a psychological or even a biological need uh, met. I want to quickly go back to the beginning and uh, go over some quick definitions about fear of man. When I say fear of man, I think I said this earlier, but I want to double down on it. We're not just talking about males. We're talking about relationships with women, uh, with children. We're talking about the natural elements. We're talking about, um, again, fear of spiders. So when, when I say man, I, I, I mean a, an all-encompassing uh, idea. I also don't just mean terrifying fear. There also is a, a fear defined as, as reverence and awe, which is kind of what I mentioned earlier. When I go from fearing of not having Christian Day's friendship, not having uh, that relationship when it becomes an idolatry, and I've elevated now that relationship into idolatry, now that fear has become reverence, has become awe. And what do we do with idols? We worship them, right? So what we learn from gospel treason is that these idolatries, these idols that we build around, they steal worship and glory and attention from God and we reorient and point them over to men. So who fears men? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. This struggle is in every single one of us here today. It doesn't matter if you're a professional, if you're a student, you have your own business, you are, are employed with someone, you're apparently strong, you're apparently weak, you're rich and influential, poor and inconsequential. It does not matter. We see this sin persist in all of us. I say this not as bad news, but I, I want to remind you that one of the tricks of the enemy is to make us feel like you're alone. The enemy wants you to believe, you know what, I'm the only one dealing with this. None of my brothers are truly going to understand what I'm going through. You, uh, going through. That is a lie. That is a lie. The church is a beautiful organism that the Lord has given us so that we can edify, that we can carry each other's burdens, that every single man on this call has the opportunity and the privilege to go to a brother and say, this is what I'm dealing with. This is how fear of man is being portrayed out in my life. I guarantee you that that other man next to you is going to say, I understand what you're going through. And this together through the scripture, through the, through the, the liberties and the freedom that we have in the word of God, we are meant to do this together. So I don't say this, that fear of man is everybody so that you guys can have bad news. I say that so that you can feel solace in that together we share in this burden. That together you have somebody who knows that what, what you're going through. It might not be a one-to-one, -one, but I tell you today that the Lord has given us or has shown us that this sin is common to man. Why? Why, why do we fear man? Past experiences are, are one of them. A lot of us have been hurt. A lot of us have, have been hurt maybe by an ex-relationship. 
Um, there, there's been physical abuse, uh, maybe sexual abuse. So past experiences have uh, have trained us to, 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 to almost have a predetermined or, or, a, or a preconceived fear of men or a thing or a person or, or an experience that might, you know, cause us to recluse or might say, you know what, I'm not going to do that again. Maybe our pride. Maybe our pride is that it, we don't want to expose our true sin. You know, again, we think about the CEO, we think about this uh, egotistical type, you know, uh, Wolf of Wall Street type individual. And again, we think, well, you know what, what do they have to fear? But the reality is that they, th- this, this, this person who seems to have it all together really has a lot of insecurities and, are, and, and really are playing out fear of man in their lives by, again, trying to hide it and mask it over success. We're going to really be talking a lot about needs-based, needs-based, needs-based. And the reason why I repeat it is because, again, in the fear of man, when people are big and God is small, there is a recurring theme that we need to move away from a needs-based relationship of men and moving to a relationship where we can love and freely love one another. So again, I mentioned the, the, the case study earlier of, of desiring to be respected, to be loved, to be cared for. Um, the psychological needs that I categorize, when those things move from uh, just being needs-based um, into idolatry, really is what I'm trying to warn us against, that the fear of man plays out really well when we have a needs-based view of people. What can this person do for me? You know, how does this relationship benefit me? You know, it, it's really a, a pride and a me-centric view of, of the world. And then again, we have a, a, a truly wrong view of what we need. We orient those three categories that we mentioned earlier, spiritual needs, biological needs, and psychological needs, when that orientation is is upside down and we believe that our psychological needs are paramount, then we get into a lot of dangers and we do a lot of things and fear that those are not going to be met. I want to get into some examples on what this scripture says about fear of man. So I'm going to give you guys some rapid fire scripture. We're going to go over it. I'm, I'm, I'm confident that most of you know the stories, uh, but I do want to go over it in a high level and I will release the notes shortly after. We see in Genesis 3, 6 through 7, that in the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing that we saw is that they hid. They did not want their shame to be exposed. They did not want uh, for God to see them, so they hid in fear. Not only did they, did they hide in fear and inappropriate fear, but they also hid in fear from each other. We saw that they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So from the beginning, we see fear of man uh, enter the world. It, it was literally from the first three chapters of the Bible. We see that fear of man play out in Luke 12, 4 through 5. It says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. It is short-sighted. When we believe that this imminent fear, biological fear, this fear that physical hurt is imminent, so we hide in our shame so that people won't expose us, uh, we're comparing ourselves to others. This is a very short-sighted view. Why? Because we have very short lives. We might live to be seven, 75 years, 80, who knows? Maybe there's some Gen Zers in here who might be 120 with all the technology that we have to our advantage. But at the end of the day, what is 120 years compared to eternity? So it's incredibly short-sighted to fear the here and now when eternity is forever. It's a destructive trap. 
Proverbs 29, 25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. I'll give you a very simple example that helped me understand this. We know that the sun can cause a lot of damage to our skin. We know that it can cause cancer. You can quickly get a sunburn, dehydration, so on and so forth. There is a lot of dangers to being exposed to the sun. It doesn't mean that we stay home all day, right? Actually, there's a lot of benefits to being out in the sun. Uh, when I first had my two children, uh, they were turning yellowish and the doctor was like, oh, you got to take them out into the sunlight. And that is going to provide vitamins to their skin and help them develop. It's incredible what, what, what it is that if we become a recluse or become in this uh, secretive state where we don't want anybody to see us because we fear that it's going to hurt us. We fear that it's going to cause uh, 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 damage to our psychological needs. It might cause damage to our biological needs. And again, when those two supersede their spiritual needs, which is, hey, confess your sins to one another, live in community, be the church, all the commands that the Lord has given us for righteousness, for holiness. When all these fears persist, secondary and tertiary needs take take hold and take precedence over primary needs, you really created a, a, a trap for yourself. And again, the enemy loves to have you alone. The enemy loves to have you in, 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 uh, in isolation. We talked about this being a, a sin that is common to man. So the, the, the devil would love nothing more for it to be him versus you. Because he's going to win that battle 10 times out of 10. Fear of man is the opposite of love. We learn in 1 John 4.18 that there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. This goes back to the theme we talked, er we talked about earlier. There is no love in ignoring sin in your brother. That is not peace. That is not loving. What is loving is that you bring your brother back to Christ. What is loving is that the church and, and, and one of its mechanisms of church discipline helps to bring that unbeliever or sorry, not unbeliever, that believer who is living in sin back into the fold. Remember, church discipline is not to cast people out. Church discipline is to bring them back in. So we don't live in fear that we are, go, we do not fear that, um, that if we obey the commandments of God, that bad things are happening. No, we fear, we, we, we do the commandments of God so that good things happen. We trust on his promises and his hopes. Fearing man minimizes our position in Christ. Romans 8, 35, 38 through 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height or death, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love that God, uh, that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, when secondary, tertiary needs, when these things are elevated, what we've done is we've basically said that the gospel and that the Christ and what Christ has done for us on the cross has been completely minimized. You guys remember back into uh, some of our studies in community group where we diminished the cross by hiding our sin. We diminish our, the cross by not, not seeing God in his proper place. And we also see that if we see God in his, in his proper place and in his holiness, the more we see God in his beauty, the more we increase in knowledge of our sin and our repulsion to sin truly is there. So let us not diminish the work that Christ has done on the cross by allowing secondary tertiary needs to supersede our spiritual needs. There is hope. Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
how will he not also be uh, with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It is Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised. Amen. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Men, there is hope in the scriptures. There is rest in the scriptures. There is a lot of, 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 uh, of exhaustion trying to hide the fear of man that you have in your life. And however that manifests itself. Maybe you're afraid of natural disasters. Maybe you're afraid of exposure of people knowing who you truly are. Maybe you're afraid of, of men in this room rejecting us. There is nothing but fear. There is condemnation. There is nothing but exhaustion on that end. The Bible gives us hope. It gives us rest. It gives us peace. It says, if you obey my commands, if you obey my commands, if you obey my commands, if you fear me, if you love me, there is all this peace to be had. There's rest to be had in truth and being able to go to a brother, uh, uh, one of one of y'all here to be able to go to you guys and say, this is how I'm struggling. I don't care if you think less of me. I don't I don't care if you think that I'm a sinner. Well, guess what? I am a sinner. The Bible repeatedly says that over and over. There is no sin that is not common to man. So again, as we think about these categories and are examining our hearts, be reminded that there is a, a, a hope and that there is a truth. And week two and week three and week four of this study is really going to expound on that subject. But I couldn't leave you guys with so much bad news. I had to give you guys some good news in, in, in the midst of all of this. God's love is our command to love others. First John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love God does not and anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We are to move away from a needs-based relationship from each other. We are to move away from a needs-based relationship to each other. If your thought when building relationships with Travis, with John, with Trevor, is what can this relationship do for me? You are in a very risky place, my friend. That, that, that needs-based ideology is what leads us to act in fear and also causes us to sin if we don't have that need satisfied. When that psychological need supersedes anything else, we are to move into a love-based relationship with our brothers. I do things for Chris today because I love him, expecting nothing in return. I do things for my friend Jeremiah because I love and care for him, not because I want anything in return. I, I, and, and I do this in light of what Christ has done for me on that cross, time in and time out. Okay, so moving a little bit past this section, which was going to be another exercise. Uh, we're moving really good on time here. I want to get, I want to harp a little bit more into the needs-based and its danger. When we have a needs-based relationship with men, 10 times out of 10, this man, this woman, this child, this job, this career is going to leave us discontent. Yes, it might provide some happiness. It might feel great when your boss says, boy, here's a raise, here's $20,000. You're, 
You might feel great, excellent. My needs, my uh, of being affirmed as a as a respectable uh, employer or as a or as a career driven person are being met. That might last for about a second, but I promise you, give it a week, give it a month, give it six months. That next promotion, that next job is going to leave you wanting more. You start to build these unhealthy dependencies. I know in my own career, I grew highly dependent on that voice. Good job, Elias. Great job. You finished that task. Wow, that project was well. And I craved it. I wanted it so badly. And whenever I went a week without getting an attaboy, a great job, man, I would be demoralized. I would feel pretty. Am I doing a good job? Am I going to get fired today? I was in this vicious cycle of having that needs. It had to be met, had to be met. Uh, by by the approval of my boss or my peers. So uh, time and time again, I was you know left discontent. I was left unhappy. I had a very unhealthy relationship to it. The third part of this progression is you become cynical. At the end of the day, men are going to do one thing over and over and over again, and that's disappoint you. We are we are unfaithful people. What we do to each other, how we treat each other, it it, it doesn't matter who you are. We we are going to disappoint each other. I've learned this in my marriage. If there's one thing that holds my marriage together is forgiveness that I have and forgiveness that my wife has for me. Why? Because we constantly let each other down. I think about 1 Corinthians 13. I had a, a, a mentor of mine ask me, hey, read 1 Corinthians 13. Are you any of these things? Are you patient? Are you kind? Uh, you know, do, 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 you, um, do you live out any of these categories in perfect love? And I had to look at what perfect love was and I realized quickly I am not any of those things. So again, you, you, you have these need-based relationships that become unhealthy, dependency on other people. Uh, when you realize they're going to let you down over and over again, you become cynical. And lastly, it destroys the relationship because you become bitter. So when that psychological needs become primary, and this is where you find your most happiness and being met by the needs of other people, this is, this is where um, you are going to kill and destroy relationships. We say this all the time with each other, Karina and I, and people ask me, hey, how do you guys, what is your secret to marriage? Our secret to marriage is really easy. We keep God first. We rush to the gospel over and over again because my wife makes mistakes on a daily basis. I make mistakes on a daily basis. So if we put our hope and our trust in each other, well, guess what? We're going to be discontent. We're going to have an unhealthy relationship with each other. We're going to become cynical and we're going to destroy our marriage. Our marriage is, 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 is grounded on the truth that we both love God because God has loved us and we are both running as hard as we can to the cross. We're both running as hard as we can to the cross. And because our orientation is spiritual, not biological, not psychological, because our orientation is spiritual, I can say that our relationship has benefited greatly. It's interesting how that works. We're not running to each other. We're running to God. And somehow God is good, right? He gives us the ability to love, to live out in love for each other. It's not longer me needing my wife to affirm or respect. Those things are great. If you ask me today, hey, would it be better if your wife respected you or not respected you? I would say it'd be better if my wife respected me. But even if my wife disrespected me for my entire marriage and I died today and went to hell, would it be worth it? If my wife disrespected me for my entire marriage, but I got to go see Christ. If my wife was an unbeliever and I got to be with Christ, man, what a short time, what a, what a short suffering it would be to be able to be with my creator, to put my spiritual needs first and biologicals and psychological needs take a backseat every single time. 
The world would like us to believe that coping for this problem uh, can be found maybe through, uh, sorry, outside of the scriptures. You know, there, and I say the word cope because the world can provide medication to make you feel good. You can run to, to beer and alcohol and it can make you feel good and make you feel good about yourself. It can numb your problems. You don't, you don't have to think about how people have disappointed you. You don't have to be fearful of the wars that are going on. You don't have to be fearful of the economy crashing. You know, take a little sip of this alcohol, you know, smoke this, drink that, take these pills and it'll help you cope. And, and you might be okay until that drug wears off and you got to take it again. Why? Why? Because the world believes that the problems that you have are external and the solution is internal. So I say this again, the world believes that the problems are external, the solutions, the solution is internal. That is completely opposite to what the scripture would say. The scripture we say is that you have a sin problem and this is an internal problem. And that the only way to solve this internal problem is through an external means, which is a God, which is a Christ who had to die for the sins that we committed. We are, we, it was our sin that put Christ on the cross. So when you're thinking about this problem of, hey, you know, how is fear of man manifesting itself? It's really all about me, 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 me. You think about yourself, you think about yourself, you think about your scripture says, stop doing that. Says, point your eyes uh, or focus on things that are above. I have another blockchain for you guys. I, I believe this blockchain, if I'm not mistaken, came from a, a, one of the first T4Gs. And I think it was on one of the videos when you guys, when y'all were there. Uh, it's from Albert Moeller. And, uh, and here it goes. And this will be also part of, uh, of your handout if you pick it up on Sundays. Here's a block quote from Moeller. We live in an age where the primary question, about, uh, the primary question asked by most persons is, am I well? What they mean, what they mean to say is am capital A me is, is, is this God that I built for myself. Am I well in a psychological sense? We have to understand that for Americans, this is normal. It is normal to be told that the self is the center of meaning and the center of meaning systems and that the self is a project that they undertake throughout the entirety of their lives. As a result, most Americans believe that their major problem is something that has happened to them and that their solution is to be found within them. In other words, they believe that they have an alien problem and that is to be solved with an inner solution. What the gospel says, however, is that we have an inner problem that demands an alien solution. That is a righteousness that is not our own. And, I, and, and we see a lot of this play out. I mean, I think about the last, what, 30 years of Disney movies. What, what, what is the theme of a Disney movie? It is that you're the answer, that we've all been waiting for you, that you're the solution, that you're going to conquer that dragon. It's all about being me, 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 that the problems are, you know, a bad stepmom, that the problems are a, uh, a, a dragon, that the problem are, are, are all external and that the solution can only be found in you. Thank the Lord that Elias was born because now the answers to the world are finally going to be solved, right? This is what we've been indoctrinated as children. We've been indoctrinated to believe that the problem is everybody else and that the solution can only be found if you just love yourself more. If you can just care for yourself more, if you can just be more kind to yourself, you know, then you can go out and love others. That is not the gospel, my friends. The gospel is true that the problem that you have is internal. It is a sin problem. It is a sin problem that will damn you to hell. And the solution that the gospel provides is an external, it's an alien solution. It is the fact that Christ died on the cross for our sins. We'll finish with this. Is there a legitimate, legitimate 
fear of, of, of man that, that, that is normal to us? And the answer is yes. None of us should walk into the zoo, open the cage to the lion, to the, uh, open the lion's cage and walk into it. That would be foolish. You guys um, all have an innate, God has built a mechanism in your, in your heart, in your mind to say, hey, stay away from the lion, right? He's built a mechanism in your mind to say, hey, if there is an imminent threat to, to, to run from that threat, um, that, that if somebody has a, a, a disease that might kill you, that, that you segregate from that, from that person. So yes, there is a, a, a natural innate uh, a fear that is appropriate. And also even a fear of respect that we have for other people, right? We, we have people in authority that, that care for us, that minister for us. So, so yes, there is to be a, 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 a position where we respect that person. Th- those, are, those are good. Those are not bad things. Again, the danger then becomes when that, um, when that fear overcomes you. When you move into the side where, that, where you, you are uh, incapacitated, where you have an inability to act, to, to love, to care, to, to be honest about your sin, to be honest about, uh, uh, about, um, about your inadequacies, when those things supersede and now have become uh, um, a, a fear base or a need base with those good things, then you start to bleed over into sin. So again, I think the scripture is very clear that, look, he, you, you are made in the image of God. There is a natural sense where you protect that. You protect life. You protect the life of your wife, the life of your children, those that are in your care, right? Uh, but when that moves over from a fear where it leaves you uh, not doing the things that, uh, that the Lord calls you to do, to go out and preach the gospel into all the world, to not be afraid, to live in, in, in hope, to live in joy, that even if you don't have biological needs met, even if the Lord right now decided to wipe out our economy, if the Lord decided that he was going to you know, put the world into inevitable war and we're all going to fight each other, even if that happens, that we would have hope, that we would have peace that surpasses any understanding. If I lost my children, if I lost my wife, that I would cling to the gospel, that I would cling to spiritual needs, that, that my relationship to God would be paramount. If that is what you can truly say, then you're on the right path. It doesn't mean that we're, any of us are there. Uh, I, I know that after reading and studying, I must have gone through this subject matter probably a dozen times before meeting with you guys today, going over these notes, going over these notes, going over these notes, letting these things penetrate my mind. Even now, I cannot stand before you and say, I got it figured out. I'm the example, guys. That would be a total, total lie. The example was found in scripture. We go to the cross for the one who did it all for us. We go to the cross uh, because that is the one, that is the God who in the beginning was the word who was there in the creation of the earth. We go to the cross for Christ who's going to be in the end times when, when he comes to, to, to gather his people and we get to worship who is, who is given the glory uh, uh, by the Father. So we get, we get to experience this, this wonderful um, relationship with Christ the Father, Christ the Son, uh, sorry, God the Son, uh, and, and God the Holy Spirit. We get to enjoy this wonderful relationship as we go and live out a life that is not dependent on the fear of man. And I'm so excited that Josh Lane next week gets to really harp on the fear of God, because that is where our hope is, that is where our trust is.